Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected. Good morning, Team Krulak community. And on behalf of Marine Corps University, the Marine Corps University Foundation, and the Brute Krulak Center for Innovation and Future Warfare, welcome back to the Brutecast, our series designed to connect the worlds of the warfighter and PME with the best in innovative and creative thought. I'm your host, Major Ian Brown, Operations Officer at the Krulak Center. Before we begin, please remember that all opinions expressed here are those of the individual and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Krulak Center, Marine Corps University, the United States Marine Corps, any other agency of the U.S. government, or any other organization with which our guests may be affiliated. So uh, we welcome back for his third episode now, Mr. Dan Rice, who's the China subject matter expert working with us at the Krulak Center at Marine Corps University. And in sort of setting up this episode, we I think we may have initially talked about various, you know, trends or things related to uh, to recent Chinese activities globally. And I think we sort of decided there's just so much going on that we can't really put it all in one box. So let's just open it up and sort of cover in a, in a more informal fashion each of those different aspects. So uh, I know I'm fairly confident that um, sort of the bullet, the great balloon escapade is probably high in everybody's minds. We will get to that. But we wanted to sort of start with some of the more recent things from this this past week. This actually kind of ties back to, uh, I think, our last episode uh, with Yuval, Dr. Yuval Weber on the Down the Rabbit Hole when we're looking at the one-year mark of the war in Ukraine. One of the things we talked about was uh, President Vladimir Putin had just sat down with, uh, I think as you all phrased it, his Chinese benefactors, sort of, uh, you know, looking for looking for a little bit of help. Um, what form that helps takes, uh, maybe something we talk about here, but, but that wasn't the only thing. So the first thing we're going to go into here, um, and, and Dan, welcome back to, uh, your, your third one here. Yeah. Um, thank you very much, Ian. And, uh, just thank you everybody in the community for joining today and looking forward to some great questions. So, so, uh, there was a Chinese delegation that went to, to go visit Putin, um, at a much smaller table, um, to talk about Russian Chinese relations. And then shortly after that, there was a sort of a two-way visit where you had a Russian delegation visiting Lukashenko, who's the the you know the leader. I'm not sure what his formal title is. He's not he's not a legally elected president, but he's the head of uh, a Belarus who has been acting as Russia's client state, um, really a second front line kind of and a military platform that Russia has launched attacks from during its invasion of Ukraine. So delegation went Chinese delegation went there, and then Lukashenko himself went back to go visit with Chinese leadership um, back in China. So there's a, uh, a pretty clear communication going on between, you know, the belligerents in Ukraine and then the Chinese government. And, you know, really the sense is Russia slash Belarus uh, looking, looking for some assistance in their invasion, or at least in Russia's invasion, because the war has not really gone as planned. And they've consumed a lot of the material that they have on top of the fact that the sanctions regime, um, as you've all mentioned last one, sanctions have not sort of like, they haven't crushed the Russian economy in the sense of like yeah. a hard stop, but they are having a longer term impact. And Russia is going to be in a very bad financial position here and probably in the coming year. So uh, Putin probably also looking for some financial support on that. So Dan, with all that, what do you, what, what do you think China is, what message did they, do you think they conveyed to these two and sort of in a larger sense, what is the likelihood of China providing more either financial or material support to either of those countries? Because they're, they, they have some reasons, I guess, to not want to see their, their friend without borders or without limits fail. 
Yeah, right. but there's also some real risks that they, they would take if they increase their support, uh, military support, especially to Russia. Um, yeah, thanks for the, the very complicated question. Um, but I, I can provide some thoughts, uh, just what I've been thinking about as I've been watching some of these things unfold. And I think first and foremost, the, the recent reporting about Chinese uh, military aid to Russia. Um, don't know if that's accurate or not, right? Could purely be speculation um, and it could actually be occurring. But that coupled with the meeting with Lukashenko as well as in Moscow, it kind of looks like China might be taking a different tact on the conflict going on between Russia and Ukraine. And by that, I mean, uh, you must have seen their 12 point plan that they put out. And they also had an accompanying map that showed their proposed demilitarized zones within Ukraine. And I'm not sure exactly what message Beijing was trying to send to those two countries, but one of them very well could be, you know, this conflict right now is disrupting significant supply chains across the world. One of those, and a very important one for Beijing, would be food supply to Southeast Asia. You know, Ukraine is known as the world's wheat production facility, right? And it used to be, at least, before this war. And uh, there are significant concerns in those countries for food security. Uh, one of the things that I had tracked was China's attempt to bolster ASEAN food security through clever programs. Um, but anyways, why does that matter for Russia and Ukraine? It's because if the war continues to grind on for the indefinite future, that would cause a consistent overtime disruption of key security concerns for Beijing in the region. More specifically, as we know, uh, Wang Huning, he is now one of the primary folks leading thought leadership uh, in foreign policy, Wang Yi, obviously, as well. And their focus is going to be much more closer to home, in my opinion. And so when you think closer to home, that means Southeast Asia, means ASEAN. And so geopolitical events are going to impact their success in those closer to home efforts uh, in ways like food security. Uh, beyond that, obviously, the big one here is the 12-point plan and China's attempt to promote a, a narrative that it can be a some sort of um, subjective broker, third party broker in Russia and Ukraine, trying to end the war there. And as we've seen in their 12 point plan, it's a little bit vague. Uh, it doesn't look like it's a very fair agreement on their like on either side. But that being said, China seems to be the only country right now that even put forward a plan. And we actually did see Zelensky say that he wanted to meet with Xi Jinping to discuss the plan, which is actually a very significant thing because it means that there's at least some sort of buy-in. Um, I don't think, uh, nor would I suggest that anybody follow the plan because as mentioned in the map, the demilitarized zones, it looks like good pretext for further annexation from Russia of these territories. Um, but that being said, I think it starts to force a hard conversation for us in the US and our allies and partners in the West of thinking 
beyond just supplying military aid and how can we come to some sort of resolution that will not be a Chinese-led resolution. Uh, and, and that obviously is a very difficult and a very complicated issue to tackle. I'll, I'll touch very briefly on this, but there's also security concerns uh, for China, specifically when it comes to a prolonged war, a prolonged Russia-Ukraine war. And what I mean by that is in a future multipolar world order, as, as they have been saying quite frequently, is their vision for the future. China and Russia themselves would be two of those poles. And in that kind of, we'll call it three tripolar maybe in order, a significantly weakened Russia through prolonged warfare in Ukraine would not be beneficial to China. And, you know, at Krulak Center, we play some war games, uh, all unclassified, obviously. And it seems like some of the takeaways from those war games are that if there is no Russia-Ukraine war, and if something were to occur in the Indo-Pacific more broadly, that it would be beneficial for China to have some sort of access to Russian support in whatever that looks like, right? And I know beyond that statement, it's all speculation, but the takeaway here is that if Russia is not caught up in the Russia-Ukraine war, then it does free up some options for types of support that China might see out of Russia in some sort of conflict. I guess maybe we can, we'll watch some future, you know, interactions between Russia and China and Belarus um, and, and see if any particular statements come out. But I think that's a, a good point to, to note is that I'm, maybe I'm oversimplifying, but they're the, you know, I think sort of the default assumption is like China really wants to like give stuff to Russia to help it in the war, like in the near term, because you know, the, the impression is you want your partner to, to not lose. Right. Yeah. But if that, you know, if that continues, you know, with that material support, keeps the war going, it makes it longer and not shorter. All that other stuff, the economic impacts and the continued yeah. degradation of the Russian economy is going to leave it in a, whether Putin like gives a crap or not, it's going to leave it in a much worse position, which then means they can't scratch China's back as much as they would potentially want them to if China decides to do some sort of expeditionary adventure. Yeah. And it, it also uh, begs the question of like, no, there is an argument to be made that in that multipolar world order, a slightly weaker Russia is also beneficial for China, right? Because then it starts looking more like a bipolar world order in which China has more say. So there is some credibility to thinking, you know, maybe China allows this thing to continue to play itself out for a predetermined amount of time with the intent of the, the longer it goes on, then the weaker Russia is and the more China can be a, more of a role model or leader for Russia. Um, but obviously there's got to be some chalk line where beyond that Russia would be too weakened by the war. And I, honestly, I think we've already seen that play out a little bit in the way how when the war first kicked off, China was taking very differing stances on whether or not it wanted to overtly support Russia with uh, with things like politics, right? So messaging on the world stage of saying like, oh yeah, you know, we fully support this special military oper operation or saying, no, you know, Russia's committing atrocities. And it really played 
the line there for quite some time. And then obviously we had further developments, which made it shift one way or the other. But it is interesting to think about like, how does Beijing make that calculus? Where is the line that they can't cross? And uh, how long are they willing to continue supporting a kind of, you know, neutral or status quo of just continuing warfare? And again, not not being able to peek behind the curtain, we can only speculate. But I, mm -hmm. I would imagine one one aspect of, of perhaps their initial hedging was just like Putin himself, maybe they thought the war would be a lot faster than it was. And so they were not willing to make any strong statement one way or the other, because that, you know, if the war's over in three weeks, that buys them, you know, they, they, they've, they've been relatively neutral, you know, well, it has not gone as nearly as uh, well as Putin simply hoped. And maybe that's sort of changed some of the calculus on the side of Z and his, uh, and the CCP back there in Beijing. Right. Um, okay. Well, I want to, uh, we'll get onto the balloon and then we have questions coming in the chat. So I want to make sure we yeah. devote the bulk of the episode to that. But so sort of the second big thing um, in the news recently was, I, I don't know if we're calling it balloon gates or, or <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know if it has a name or not, because with subsequent balloons, there were some elements of that were a little bit ridiculous in, uh, in how it was starting to get covered. But, you know, um, rewinding, I want to say, what, two weeks now, we had, you know, very high visibility Chinese uh, surveillance reconnaissance of some sort craft that was uh, spotted by, a, I think, just an observer on the ground in Montana, you know, using, yeah. I don't know, binoculars or a camera zoom or whatever. And then we watched the saga of the balloon, you know, making it all the way to the Atlantic Ocean, where it was finally downed by uh, U.S. military aircraft. There's a lot of different layers to this, and I'm not going to go into, there, there's like a NORAD layer, right? There's like a, you know, public transparency layer for, you know, for both the Amer Amer arguably American and Canadian administrations, because it was over their our respective territories for a while without any public comment. But, you know, but that's, that's of less concern right now than this is a relatively like sort of overt blatant intrusion by a, a Chinese um, aerial craft um, that really has, you can't like excuse or wash it away, right? Like, it's not like a an airliner that got lost a little bit on its way across the land. Like, it's very purposeful and it's very, there's really no way you can spin it that, you know, with, without just assuming people are, are, are willing to suspend disbelief, if you will. So, um, I don't think we, we don't really know yet a lot about sort of what the balloon's payload was aside from the visual images that we got, but yeah. you know, but let's that. like, why do you, why do you think that they, they did something this, this overt, you know, the, that became a very public spectacle? Um, what do you, what information could they possibly, could they have been trying to glean from this that they couldn't get from other sort of ISR sources like satellites? I guess in terms of the time, is there anything significant about the timing, right? You know, like why now, why is this something that, they haven't been, you know, trying on an enduring basis or or before there was not a major war over in Europe that has increased everybody's sort of security posture and concern with their own borders. The the bottom line, the way that I see this, right, fundamentally, this is a I believe it's a high altitude balloon, uh, regardless of what altitude it's actually flying at. It's it's up there. It's not a satellite like a LEO satellite, which would obviously have to be in LEO orbit, um, but it occupies this space in between literally the fringe of the atmosphere that, and uh, space that China is terming near space. And what I think this balloon represents beyond 
simply a signals intelligence gathering platform is a physical manifestation of proliferation of both things in near space. So things like balloons or high altitude aircraft, as well as uh, satellite constellations in LEO, so low earth orbit. And it, it's the physical manifestation of the proliferation of China's C4 ISR system. It's their command control, communications, computing, and intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance. And feel free to correct me if I got the, the fourth C wrong there. But yeah, regardless. So it, it appears to be that in China's overall strategy for modernizing its military, uh, there's broadly three buckets that they have planned. The first is mechanization. So think swap out pink bodies uh, for hard, hard, like literally hardware. So things like tanks, ships, planes. Um, the idea is to get more physical hardware in the battle space in order to get away from older concepts of like a human wave tactic at, at its very basic level, right? Um, from there, it goes into informationization. So this is lessons learned in Desert Storm um, from, so lessons China learned from Desert Storm that leads to the conclusion that information dominance is everything in modern warfare, right? And from there, a future plan is called intelligentization, which envisions wrapping in smart systems and artificial intelligence into decision-making to complete the F2T2EA chain or the kill chain uh, and leveraging the information backbone to be able to realize that goal. Now, in the latter two, right, mechanization, they, they think it's nearly there. They want, I think it's 2027 is the, you know, that's the day that mechanization is done. Um, and then from there, informationization, intelligentization. And these things overlap depending on what systems they develop. So this balloon, right, to get back to the, the topic, is one of the layers in this overall C4ISR network that they're developing. And I think as we go further into the future, these kinds of things will become more apparent and much more visible. And I know I sent you a graphic. Um, do you want to pull that up now? Because I think it speaks a little bit more to this concept because obviously, you know, I'm not like, oh my God, they're taking photos of missile silos, uh, which they probably were, quite frankly, you know, definitely gathering SIGINT. Um, but I do think there's a, there's a larger picture here that we can't miss. So, you know, for our audience, a little context on this graphic, I was just doing some digging, thinking on the C4ISR topic on uh, Chinese internet. So, you know, Baidu Boolean logic searches on these kinds of things um, using some OSINT. And I came across a, uh, a market analysis. So to be fair, this is from a investment company in China that was publishing a market report on the future of connectivity and the internet and you know, where you should invest to get the most money. Uh, why is that important? Well, quite frankly, I, I don't know if anybody here looks at market analysis in the U.S., but generally they're, they're pretty objective analysis uh, that people put together because they're supposed to be making good investment decisions. So that's where the money is, in their opinion, likely to flow. And so this is what they came out with, one of the graphics that represents this overall concept of 
connecting a multi-domain uh, C4ISR network that uses different levels of altitude to include, which is not on this graphic, but uh, subaquatic and subterranean things. So things like undersea cables or 5G networks that are not literally towers. Um, but you can see here that like, although it's not the exact shape of the balloon, it does look like balloons are part of the overall architecture that they're planning. And I think for me, a super interesting one here too, are the little quadcopters that they use to represent more uh, drone systems, which we have seen in open source reporting as becoming more proliferated and more pronounced in the exercises in or near Taiwan airspace. So think of things like the Kinmen Matsu Islands where there's some drones that have been popping up there. Some of those look like quadcopters, uh, but as I know, digging through some of the orders of battle uh, through the different PLA services, PLA People's Liberation Army, that drone platforms across the services are being bought at a, a pretty rapid rate. And the army actually, the PLA army is one that is trying to figure out how many different types of ISR or drone platforms it can field and what the effects are. So if you think in the larger scheme of things here, right, you've got your 5G networks on the ground, things like Huawei, that, that was in the news for a long period of time and everybody's like national security concern, right? Well, you've got those proliferating in certain areas. Then you've got a level of drones, which are gonna be more closer in range because they are limited by how long they can actually fly. And then you support that with things like balloons, which would be a long loiter time, as we know that that balloon that was over the US was flying for several days at a time. Drones might only have maximum like 48 hours, depending on the platform, can get a little longer, can be shorter, uh, but then you support that with immediate support through things like higher uh, higher altitude or longer range ISR platforms could be a plane type of system. Then LEO constellations, MEO, GEO, right? All of it interconnected to provide more secure communications in conflict and more ability to gather data at longer ranges and make sure that the data that you gather is able to be communicated back to Beijing where they can actually process it and use it. Um, and I know Rand actually just put out a port, uh, report last night, I believe, and I only read the synopsis, so bear with me here, but they were explaining that the PLA views its own shortcomings as getting to having the sophisticated network necessary to, to support the informationization and intelligentization of their military, or as they see it, having a modern military. So, you know, long story short, you know, bring it all back here. I think in the future, things like this balloon platform are just the beginning. You're gonna be seeing a lot more things in LEO. So low earth orbit, uh, they have planned something called the Guowang or the, like the internet, uh, the, the country's net, um, which is about 13,000 LEO satellites, their answer to Starlink. So those are gonna be start dotting the, the sky and maybe visible at night. Uh, and then more balloons, I think even beyond the one that flew over the US, 
I'm going to get the numbers wrong, but I believe balloons were spotted in like, yeah, think national internet. Thank you. Yes. Uh, so I think they were spotted over something like 40 countries, multiple, multiple balloons. It wasn't just the one over the U.S. So that's that's my hot take on, you know, the significance of the balloon. And then obviously, if you're talking about what can we do to actually get after this problem, we obviously need more robust systems to be able to sense these things before they become a problem over our territory. And uh, unfortunately, there seems to be no better way to take care of these things than literally sending up something like a F-22 with the name 9X on it. Because Canada, a few years ago, they tried shooting one down with, you know, no kidding, just rounds out of the guns on the uh, CF-18s. It took them like a thousand rounds in the ways that these balloons are constructed. They, they've got multiple walls. So you poke a couple holes and then it just starts slowly sinking, right? Uh, so... It's not, not a great answer, but uh, hey, you know, blow it out of the sky. I guess that's one way to get around that. That whole weekend, I spent more time than I imagined um, exchanging messages with, you know, family and associates about sort of like the weaponeering and tactics behind this. And I'm like, yeah. I, I'm pulling deep into my, you know, doctrinal knowledge about air to air stuff because the 53 doesn't do that, um, you know, but <laughs> But as, as it was going on, like I, I sort of eventually came to the same conclusion that you, you just mentioned there, which is there's reasons why, you know, they shot it down with what they did, where they did it, right, over yeah. open water as opposed to over land somewhere. I don't know if amusing is the right word, but it was certainly there were a lot of sudden air to air experts who popped up on Twitter and social media pronouncing about why why should have done it somewhere else or used a different, different weapon thing. Um, to, your, to your point, a, a big pop kind of gets you. If you want to recover it in a place where you can predict it's going to land, you got to knock the whole balloon out yeah. immediately so that it comes straight down. But yeah, and this uh, thing was the size of like three school buses, right? It, it was not small. So, but yeah, so anyone, everyone became a, uh, you know, armchair fighter pilot that weekend, though. Um, right. Yeah. Interesting to watch. So um, I'm going to turn to the audience questions now, but the first one we'll go into actually um, jumps off of the balloon incident. And uh, so from Albert Lee here, what are your thoughts on or what should we take away from sort of the communication between China and the United States governments as this incident was unfolding? Um, he brings up that there were some reports that the Chinese government had basically refused to take America's phone calls. Um, what does this pretend um, for possible future incidents, you know, potentially not over our territory, but in some of the you know flashpoints in the South China Sea or in, you know, around the first island chain? What if they're not taking our calls? What are the implications for a, a more significant, you know, a more significant or serious incident? Uh, yeah, and Albert, I've seen you sent a bunch of questions. So great question. I mean, obviously, it causes a lot of problems. So it, it's no secret. Neither the U.S. nor China really want to ever get into a hot conflict with each other. Um, you know, look at the unclassified war games that are out there. It's not good for either side. And uh, even in that report I mentioned. The, the PLA is like, and Xi Jinping even is like, look, a prolonged conflict with the U.S. is not going to be beneficial for any party involved. So, you know, how do you get around that is diplomacy. You can talk to people, you can deconflict, you can give fair warnings if something is going to happen that you know is beyond your control, uh, right? So even just having a phone call saying, look, we got a balloon that's floating over the U.S., you know, I don't know how it got there. 
even if they do know, uh, just making that statement, giving that fair warning will reduce the likelihood of any sort of escalation. So if China's not taking the phone calls, that is a really bad indication of what future communication at the diplomatic level will look like and absolutely leads to a higher threat of miscommunication and things devolving into conflict. Um, so, you know, I don't know, I don't know how we can get the message across to Beijing that they need to pick up those phones if that is indeed what is happening. Um, but if they're not, I would say that's, that's not a good situation because you also have to keep in mind, even if there is not any threat or a pop-up instance that occurs, there's a lot of mutual understanding that you can build and, you know, communicating strategic intent in different areas beyond the conflict domain and or military domain to things like, you know, I'll use the example of the base in Djibouti that, that we all know. And it's like, hey, you know, what's going on with the base in Djibouti? Oh, you know, this is meant for this purpose or whatever that the message comes out. Um, if we don't have that kind of communication, we're left to our own speculation in our own understanding of what their strategy is. And it will, you know, I'm the Chinese me at the Krulak Center, but I'll tell you this, like somebody in Beijing working on foreign policy obviously knows so much more than I could ever hope to on that topic because they live and breathe it. So if you can't have a conversation with somebody like that, you only, you're limited to what you know and what you can reasonably assess that those intents are. Uh, so I hope that changes in the future. It's obviously something that needs to change if we really want to avoid conflict. For our own ends, you know, if there's no way to talk, the best thing that we can do is just prepare ourselves for any contingency that can occur and move forward on that front. And, and that's all we can hope for. Yeah, and uh, one of our audience members just noted in the chat here that, you know, the hotline to the USSR was was open even during like the, you know, the the darkest crises right. that we faced in the Cold War. And so it's very, it's interesting. And it's also concerning that like we're in an age of much greater volume and fidelity of communications pipelines. Like we're in a digital age, right? right? Like we should be able to get direct to anybody we would need to in the in the Chinese government. Uh, but we can't in the digital age. And that is definitely, that's very, very concerning. Yeah. I, you know, the one thing I'm going to throw out here too, for more of like a full context on something that we need to keep in mind as well, is that because China is a one-party state, there will be periods of time, like ahead of the upcoming National People's Congress, where, you know, there's specific movements within the party and party politics that will likely affect the ability to reach out to somebody. Not that that should be like, shame on us, we didn't try, right? You should obviously try, but we need to have a certain level of awareness on like, you know, during or right around the presidential election in the US, people within the party are probably not gonna really have much to say unless it's like rah, rah, vote for my candidate, um, which is fine. But it means that if something like balloon gate is, if we're going to call it that happens around that time, we should not expect any sort of communication. And uh, again, that just pushes the, the threat level, if you, if you want to call it that up.
So, you know, a little more awareness on that and then trying as best to mitigate any sort of damage that could happen in those circumstances. Great. Okay. So, uh, so thank you for that. And so next question actually um, kind of touches on the sort of the, the political internal workings of the, the CCP. And this is from Jared Duff, but it also goes back to something we talked about in the very first broadcast we did with you, which was the, uh, the removal of Hu Jintao, who was yeah. former general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party during their last, the most recent Chinese Communist Party National Congress, which was what, I don't know, October, November timeframe. I forget when we did the first one. But, uh, yeah, I think it was uh, October, but. Right, yeah. So, and, and we, we, we talked about it at the time that, you know, one, that was a very visible action that was taken to physically remove him. And two, you know, the fact that we, we the world were allowed to see it, that it was disseminated, seemed to have uh, a, a sort of potential message carrying along with it. Um, but as Jared notes, it's sort of in, in, you know, sort of more normal, um, you know, media channels or, or maybe foreign policy analysis, there has not been a lot of follow-up on, you know, why, why this happened and what the implications were. So, you know, so again, we touched on this several months back. Um, have you seen any more information or do you have any sort of additional thoughts or, or context that um, you could lay out uh, as we, we, we revisit that incident, you know, sort of in our minds right now? I mean, unfortunately, I, I mean, I don't have much more. I don't think much more developed on that front. There have been certain things that we've seen in terms of the overall ideological alignment within the party. So maybe that speaks to it. So I'll just, you know, I'll briefly touch on the incident for anybody that's in the call that might not know what happened. So essentially during the, the CCP's big annual, or I guess every five-year meeting, Hu Jintao, the former president, former general secretary of the party, he was removed towards the very end in a very visible signal to the rest of the party that as Xi Jinping was getting his third term as general secretary, he was the thought leadership. Uh, the subtext behind this is that there was factional, there were factions within the CCP and Hu Jintao was part of one of those factions. Xi Jinping was part of another one. Although to be fair, from the outside looking in, it's hard to draw lines where those factions separate. Um, but largely it's understood that they were in different factions. So by removing Hu Jintao from the meeting, it was a, it was a symbolic gesture that, hey, time for factions is over. Everybody is now going to become more aligned under Xi Jinping and his thoughts on leadership for the country. And because if you have somebody that's in a position to be, we'll call it leader for life, because that's kind of what it's looking like, um, that you can't have dissenting opinion and still have authority over the choices that that leader makes. Uh, to have factionalism within the party at that point would lead to improper policy decisions, carrying it out, not in an effective manner. Um, so, you know, move forward a little bit from there over the past few months, what have we seen? There has been some shakeups in the foreign policy community. I forget the exact name of it. I think it's Mr. Zhao, who was the former spokesperson for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. He ends up getting removed. He was the guy that was known as like the wolf warrior, if you remember uh, the, the term wolf warrior diplomacy. 
So he was like the wolf warrior. He ends up going off to, I believe it's um, border, not border protection, but it's like border and sea control, some bureau that is governs that kind of policy. And then he gets replaced in, as the spokesperson. That means that if you think about the overall foreign policy apparatus, uh, that as well as some shifts in the leadership of the foreign policy of the CCP, um, it seems like there's more of an alignment with the mouthpiece and the leadership to being closer to aligning with Xi Jinping's objectives, which seem to be creating what is termed the community of common destiny within the Indo-Pacific first and foremost. That is the like tangible takeaway for why does it matter for us when we're thinking about things, especially geopolitics. Um, and it goes back to the Hu Jintao. It's all over time, this alignment of policy from the top level to the way it's expressed in the international community, aligning under Xi Jinping's thoughts. Uh, and I think that's something that as we move towards this next meeting, that uh, the National People's Congress, I believe this term, will be having that we should look for as well is how do the official elections into the state legislature, how do those play out in a line as well with Xi Jinping's thoughts on how to govern the country as well as look and interact internationally. Great, thank you. And I was writing down, as you mentioned, I had not heard the term community of common destiny before right. as a regionalism, but um, it immediately echoed in my mind to the greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere. <laughs> yeah. An earlier time of expansionism and uh, and uh, strong arming of a different Asian country and uh, Japan. That, that, yes, yeah, that did not that did not go well last time. Um, That's right. Yeah, I can't imagine the sequel will be any better. And so next question, we're going to shift gears here a little bit, and this is from Bazir uh, Rayet. I hope I'm pronouncing that properly. But um, he's asking sort of, I'll, I'll try and phrase it properly here, but the another aspect of China's sort of aggressive intruding itself into places where it didn't used to be have been the the fishermen or the fisher fleets that have been sent really globally. You know, he calls them the little blue men. We had a little green men that Russia sent into Crimea. Now we have the little blue men who are, you know, they're they're fishing, you know, thousands and thousands of miles away from Chinese waters. And uh, and they're causing some real economic problems for the countries closer to those waters that, you know, now they've been basically muscled out. So uh, I, I guess what are some of the, the latest you know, trends of developments you've seen in terms of how these these uh, these global fishing fleets have been used and and whether there's been any sort of effective counter to to slow them or stop them or or keep them away from some of these territories that other nations really rely on for economic input? Great question. And thank you for asking it. This specific issue I've thought about a bit and it falls into one of those gray areas. And by that, I mean, you could talk to somebody and they might say, this is China's military reach abroad because of these fishing ships and their link to uh, the People's Liberation Army, Navy, maritime militia. Um, and I think that actually falls under a different department, but that or the Coast Guard. And then you could also say, you know, these are just fishermen that are way out abroad and not really, you know, 
doing anything besides fishing over here, which still is illegal fishing, by the way, right? They're, they've been caught in the exclusive economic zone of certain countries fishing illegally. So I think Brazil was one of those, which is one of those examples of like pretty far away from China. So there's not anything that I have seen in recent developments that I can talk to, but what I could try to do for, for our audience today is to talk about how that can influence or play into the military aspect of things, right? Um, and this actually happened recently in a war game, which was really interesting. So the, the PLA Navy has its own force. Then there's something called the China Coast Guard, which falls under the Navy and then under a different department uh, that involves the different militias China has. You have the maritime militia and that one specifically looks a heck of a lot like a bunch of fishing boats. So while, you know, it is absolutely speculation to say that the same ships that are floating off the coast of Brazil fishing are maritime militia, that, you know, speculation, 100%. Um, but if, if China wanted to use the fishing fleets as a cover or they needed protection for these fishing fleets and they decided, hey, why don't we send something like the maritime militia over with them just to provide cover or even closer to home in the South China Sea uh, when you think about these fishing fleets going off the coast of the Philippines or into any of the territorial waters that is in that massive archipelago of all those countries. Um, then maybe Coast Guard. Uh, but these, these ships could act as, we'll call it, the very, very leading edge of getting eyes on different areas. Um, you know, it's really hard to tell what is put on top of one of these ships beyond what you can see with binoculars, uh, unless you're running like legitimate signals intelligence operations against them to figure out what they could be emitting, right? So there is a possibility that these ships, if they are interspersed with these fishing ships, uh, could have things that are used for getting more ISR out at a farther edge. Um, but, you know, let's, let's talk about the, the non-military implications of this. Obviously, it's a problem. And I'm not entirely convinced that Beijing even knows the answer to this question but they have a legitimate need for food back home. And some of their territorial waters, if not most of them have been overfished. And that was due to poor regulations early on. And then if you think back to the eighties and the opening up and reform, essentially when there was kind of a hand wave that said, hey, you know, you are now allowed to do economic activities for personal gain that turns into fishermen saying, well, I can fish as much as I need to in order to not only provide for my family, but to sell it on the market for more money to, you know, in the future, have a better lifestyle. Uh, and that led to a lot of overfishing. So there is this legitimate need for fish in the Chinese domestic market to sustain their massive population. And once you overfish your own territorial waters, you got to go somewhere else. Um, so, like I said, I don't think Beijing has a really good answer for this on that front. And I do think that it looks 
incredibly bad in international politics for Beijing to have illegal fishing vessels over in other countries, exclusive economic zones, fishing up all of their fish too. Because by the way, uh, if you're not following fishing regulations at home, uh, you're almost certainly not following anything that would you know, benefit the local fish population in these other countries, likely not going to find them popping up in the U.S.'s territorial waters. Why? Because we have a substantial Navy, we have a Coast Guard, we can go out and intercept these ships and track them pretty closely. Um, but if you're talking about other countries that might not necessarily have that kind of robust uh, maritime capability more broadly, then it causes serious problems because they can't even put pressure out there to stop it if they want to. So obviously we're going to need some better uh, international regulations if possible on this. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's not a, it's not a new issue, but there, yeah. there does not seem to have been an effective counter sort of developed uh, in the that's in right the years. Um, so kind of, I want to take that point, you know, the, the bad look in international politics and I'm, I'm going to try and tie this to something else that I, I jotted down here and, maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. But yeah, so the question of like perceptions and sometimes China seems to take actions that from basically all external sort of perceptions, make them look bad and yet they continue to do this. And so we'll like the fishing, fishing fleets basically just blitzing into other people's fishing grounds and doing whatever they want to. Like you said, it's not a great look, right? And then the other thing I was, I was thinking of was there is a recent unsafe interception fighter jet approach from a Chinese fighter against an American patrol aircraft. And again, not the first time this has happened, right? But, you know, it's a repeated, uh, a repeated issue. And, you know, again, the, the issue is like the perception is one, it's, it's very aggressive. Um, and it's, it, you know, it's, it's throwing a sharp elbow, you know, but also for, for everybody, like I'd say any, any sort of aviation person on the outside, that is that is incredibly unsafe and dangerous. Like that is a huge right. hazard to, you know, tr you know, get well within what a normal interception procedure is. Um, and it just makes you look like like both incompetent, hyper aggressive and 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 uncaring of sort of the basic international norms that you you want to work for your advantage. Uh, but like the fishing thing that like they only care about the international norms until they don't. Right. They do a lot right. of a lot of things that are very clear violations of that. Do they, do you think that the, there's a, there's just, they just don't care about what that perception is or is it, or is it possibly a, a, a product of the fact that they are a one party system, which is, you know, can be a closed echo chamber at some points. And perhaps they don't maybe fully understand that some of these things make them look bad, um, which, which is its own challenge because if there's a mismatch between their, their mm -hmm. perceptions and actual reality, um, you know, that makes future interactions that much riskier and more hazardous. That's a really good question. I would honestly, I think it's a lot less complicated than, you know, some sort of micromanagement of things abroad. I honestly think that certain instances of this come down to policy and the human factor in execution of the policy. So like the intercept of the patrol aircraft. Um, and what you're referencing, yeah, the, the fighter pilot, the, the Chinese fighter pilot was really close to the aircraft. And to be fair, he was in a fighter aircraft and it was a patrol aircraft. So, you know, this is a really crappy analogy, but it's like almost like a commercial airliner, 
versus a quick zippy kind of platform that can move a lot faster than that uh, that patrol aircraft can. And so it is on the responsibility of the, the fighter aircraft to have a safe distance because of that difference in maneuverability. But again, this, this comes down to the execution of the pilot in that aircraft, right? Beijing might say, hey, intercept that aircraft. And then he goes, yes, you know, got it, going to go do that. And then when he's actually executing that move, it's not great. And this could come down to both uh, the actual practice of it, the frequency that this individual pilot has conducted this kind of maneuver, etc., all human factors. But I think that is an example of that. Does Beijing notice that? Absolutely, right? They're not, they're not sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, you know, we just did this so perfectly. This is not going to be a problem if we do this consistently in the future. The difference is, is that even if that is what they are thinking, we're never going to hear it, right? Because of that one party system and because of the control over the media that China or the CCP has, the thing that you'll hear is, oh, you know, this was a very successful intercept of an American aircraft. And then they're going to spin it as look how far the, the PLA Air Force has come to be able to do this. But I'm sure internally they're thinking, wow, you know, if we get this wrong and if that fighter pilot's getting, you know, actually ends up running into that aircraft, we're going to cause an international incident. And so they're, they're likely taking those lessons and trying to figure out how to adjust it. Uh, but that takes large muscle movements, you know, down to literally the training and education pipeline of the PLA Air Force fighter pilots. Uh, and will take time to get better at if if that's what they're after. When we're talking about, like, again, back to the fishing vessels, I think it's a, a similar thing. But in that specific case, um, talking about fishing vessels, I think there's less interconnectivity between what's occurring there and the policy direction because they are commercial enterprises, right? The PLA directly controlled by the CCP and the Central Military Commission with Xi Jinping at the top. Uh, Joe Schmo fishing, fishing fleet, you know, I don't even know who runs that. Um, so there's less direct lines back to policy there. And on the international stage, yeah, if, if Beijing wants to set a tone of, you know, not only following international norms and behaviors, but also as they would like to see changing some of those in the future to reflect the realities of Chinese policy and Chinese thinking on those things. It's not okay to go out of the gates, breaking all of those norms and trying to change other people's ways that they interact with international rules and regulations immediately. So yeah, I think there needs to be a lot more, like if, if Beijing is gonna continue on that path, it's going to cause a lot of problems, especially as we look at the different areas that could affect our own interests. The point you mentioned about the human factors thing, I'm, I'm, I'm dwelling on that because the I'm old enough to remember, you know, back when before 9-11 happened, like there you had the incident where a Chinese jet did exactly this against right. the U.S. patrol plane and hit it. Right? right. And it forced the patrol plane to do an emergency landing on Hainan Island, I think right. it was before 9-11 took security concerns in a different direction. 
um, man, there was a lot of uh, a lot of real concerns that this could turn that could turn into a a really bad incident. So right. the, the human factor thing is interesting to me because if the the senior leadership, you know, if internally they're like, you know, smacking these pilots around for doing these unsafe things, right? But the pilots are not getting any better at it, you know. Right. Looking, you know, so that was two. That was two thousand one, if I remember the Hainan incident. And you know, fast forward twenty two years to today. And they're still executing these intercepts in these incredibly yeah. reckless fashions. Yeah. Um, we have much more advanced systems, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Much, yeah. And so it's it's just interesting to me. The human factor is even if they're grinding their gears with their military behind the scenes, the, the training and procedures do not seem to have gotten any better or or safer, at least, which has, to, uh, you know, it would be purely speculation. But that has some very that raises potentially interesting implications about their ability to improve the human component of their military in terms of, you know, proper training, proper execution of these things. You know, we know that they've been, they've been rapidly improving the material aspects, but you know, the people in the cockpit, a 20 year reform of aviation training syllabus should be noticeable in how you interact with other aircraft. So it's yeah. interesting. So yeah, I, I'm, I want to make a really quick point on this, but that is a first and foremost concern for Beijing, right? Like I'm going to point back to the Rand report last night, like, you know, in, the, in those highlights, that was it. It's like, they acknowledge that there's been a rapid development of the hardware, but that the people need to catch up to be able to use it and get realistic training on it. Right. And, and that does, I mean, there has been a change in, the, the PLA Air Force training over time, right? There's getting quite a few flying hours now, but how much of it is realistic training and how much of it is scripted training? That's a big question, right? And it, and it seems like most of it is scripted, but there is this, a, there is this a component or thought in uh, the PLA writ large of you know, realistic training for realistic scenarios. How do we get or inject more of that on the fly decision-making execution under pressure, you know, when you don't know exactly what the outcomes of a maneuver are going to be, how can you work that in into the training pipeline to become better? Um, and there are mechanisms that they have in place to do that, but certainly there's a lag time between perfecting it in training scenarios and then execution in the real world. And let's not forget, right? There is some level of communication barrier between, you know, saying what you intend and actually executing in real time. Like there were a couple of videos recently I saw of um, a Chinese destroyer communicating with an aircraft and the Chinese fighter pilot communicating with an aircraft. You know, it's in English. I think that's the international language for communication over the airwaves. Um, but even then, it's like, all right, there's you can communicate your message, but under pressure, can you communicate exactly what's occurring with the effect of actually de-escalating the, the circumstances? There's there's a lot of factors, but it's a uh, it's all all interesting and all something we need to watch as we move forward from here. Yeah, no, thanks for expanding on that. And, you know, I, I, we've had this discussion back in the office, I know, but to me really, you know, the thing that I, I watch the most closely and I, I, I acknowledge we have the least information on is really 
that human performance factor inside, yeah. you know, the PLA and affiliated branches, because I, you know, I, you get, we have lots of maps about how many, you know, maps of the range rings of death of all their missiles. And we're doing shit hull counts for how many ships they have and how many new aircraft, but, you know, in watching how they use these things, how good those pilots, sailors, and soldiers actually are at conducting sophisticated operations. And I look at, I look at, you know, an, an aerial interception, it's always sort of a high risk operation because you're trying to get another aircraft to do something that it doesn't want to do necessarily, you know, but the, the technical aspects of the aerial, like they're not complicated, you know, and there's, there's a long established international aviation regulations on how you do, how you do an interception, how, if you are the craft being intercepted, how you are supposed to respond. Like none of this is new or complicated. So watching how these things have unfolded to me has been the most, is, is really been the thing to watch. Um, and it's really something I wish we could get more information on. Okay, so I'm, I'm gonna do, uh, we're about an hour now, but I'm gonna do one more question from Albert Lee and I think we'll call it a, call it a, a wrap here. I'm gonna, I'm gonna phrase the question a little bit differently, but I think it gets to the same point is, you know, he's raising the point that, so moving away from sort of, sort of the military and some of the, you know, China's more aggressive uh, expeditionary operations is, you know, there's an economic reality in all of this that we in the United States and other parts of the world are still plugged in very deeply to China in terms of economic manufacturing relations, right? Like yep. they make a lot of stuff that we buy and that's just, that's a simple fact. So um, the, the question is, do you see a, either a sort of a forced tipping point or maybe a, an opportunity that we don't just see right now, but where, where that dynamic potentially shifts and, and there's a decision outside of China that, you know what, the headaches are no longer worth the goods. Um, and mm -hmm. I, I, what I, my paraphrase here of the question is, you know, we watched after Russia invaded Ukraine, there was a huge decoupling, um, especially from Europe in terms of energy imports, like just getting away from the Russian economy because like with the invasion of Ukraine, it was crystal clear. They are not a stable, trustworthy economic partner. If right. They go blitzing into their neighbors. Right now, China has not done anything to that extent yet, at least. But is there a possibility of a future decoupling from China where, you know, hopefully it's not a, an aggressive military action. But if these sort of belligerent, bullying, you know, aggressive sort of throwing elbows wherever they are, um, where other countries who are interacting with China are finally like, we're done, right? Like, this is just not worth it. We're going to go find our our goods um, or our, uh, you know, our whether it's cheap manufactured goods or some of the, the rare earth metals that go into, you know, much more advanced electronic components. Just be like, we're done. We're going something else. A great question. And thank you again, Albert. I guess I would answer that with a follow-up question, you know, and that is, what cost are you willing to pay? Why I say that is there, or at least I've heard of significant improvements in manufacturing of a variety of goods within the EU, different countries that are building up manufacturing for things that we would traditionally get from China. Uh, so, you know, go to Walmart, look in the shelves. Most of the stuff you find is probably going to be from China. Uh, so there's manufacturing for that kind of level of goods. Uh, in other countries, but the price that you have to pay to diversify that supply chain of those basic goods is going to be higher. So 
I think there is, there's enough space in the world and enough people in the world to diversify supply chains for that kind of inter, uh, that kind of economic interconnectivity. Uh, that being said, it depends on how much you are willing to pay. If you are always going for the lowest cost, you will end up right now running into a lot of Chinese manufacturing. It's just the way it is, even if that is Chinese owned manufacturing plants abroad. Um, and I, I published a piece with Mez Insights recently, and maybe you can ping that for everybody in. But uh, I cover a little bit of that. Right. So even if you think you're buying from the example I'll use is Ethiopia, you know, you're really buying from a Chinese manufacturing plant in Ethiopia. Uh, that is, that's the bottom line right there is just, yes, we can diversify that if there ever becomes a point in time in which manufacturing is robust in other countries and allows for that transition, then I think that's a, you know, a national call to make in terms of where do we allow places to source things. Uh, that being said, it kind of defeats the idea, the basic economic idea of globalization, which is using comparative advantage of each country to the benefit of the overall global economy. Um, so it's not, you know, it's an artificially created ecosystem of economics that we would have to pursue, uh, which, you know, by the way, looks a lot like the Cold War. So it's, it's a hard line to walk and an incredibly complicated one. Um, and I don't think right now that really any country in the world has the ability to do that. That includes China, because we often look at the U.S.-China economic interdependence as, you know, we need all of their goods. Well, by the way, they need to sell all their goods, right? And they, they have established some overseas markets, but the U.S. market is obviously one of the most lucrative consumer markets on the planet if not the most. So it is equally a valuable market for them. Um, so like I said, right now, I don't think there's a way to really snap that chalk line, if you will. There are ways we can help push it in the future. And if the decision is made in the future, that is a very difficult one. And then again, back to the question I posed, it's what cost are you willing to pay? It's a lot more than just sort of the, uh, you know, sort of the the moral outrage of a thing there's definitely a real right. real world cost and I, I guess why the question is being asked now I know I'm you know I'm, I'm not trying to speak on Albert's behalf but sort of in in my own mind is there's been a lot of not super recent discussion but I'd say in the last couple of years sort of more and more foreign policy or diplomatic commentators noting that the whole theory of if you sort of interact with China economically you know that interaction creates the path toward you know, maybe a more more moderate, you know, political environment or, you know, a more friendly relationship with other countries and sort of the consensus is, yeah, yeah, that didn't work. Right. They're getting they're getting the benefits. They're getting the, you know, the income. Um, they're getting the 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 ability to access these other markets to sell their stuff. And there's been no political liberalization or diplomatic moderation right. that's gone along with it. You know, well, <laughs> So it didn't work, but what do you do now? Because you're still plugged into them very deeply economically, as you just said. Although I, I might also, again, speculation, I wonder if if the, the, the party at least is starting to ask itself, 
well, maybe some of these other countries would be willing to pay more to change their source to a more stable and more liberal political environment. Because, and I, I don't want to over oversimplify, but you know, the European decision to decouple from cheap Russian gas, right? Like that right. had a cost. Like there's a definite um, price tag associated with that, as well as you know a lot of near-term friction. And you know, they they were a a regular provider for so long. You want to cut it off, but where do you go to? Like, there's no infrastructure. There's no That's sort right. of you know shipping um, shipping pattern that you can just easily swap the one out with the other. It's not easy, and it's costly. Yeah. It's expensive, but you know, European countries, they did it. They made that decision to eat the pain because, you know, Russia simply cannot be relied on. You know, that same thing, if, if we if we buy Russian gas, get them interacted with our economies, it'll it'll calm Putin down and make him less nasty. Well, that didn't work, right? right. So and, and, sorry, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, to be fair, like that, my answer to that question explored the U.S. perspective of it. I mean, one doesn't have to look far to see BRI projects all over the place that are fundamentally aimed at doing or getting after some of those issues. I think that's a totally separate conversation. And I'm very happy in the future if, if folks like this Q&A today to do something like that again. And uh, maybe we can send a poll out ahead of time and gather a couple of questions to kick off the conversation from, from our audience. Yeah, I, I don't want to open up a whole nother line of inquiry here as we've been going for more than an hour. So, uh, but yeah, definitely something we can think about for doing a, a future event, sort of just open question form, just like this. Yeah. Like I said, we're, we're past an hour here. So I think um, I'd say we've, we've had good success with this format. So maybe we'll look at doing another open Q and a with Dan here in the future. And uh, so to everyone in the audience who, who joined in today and was giving us some really good questions, thank you for, attending and uh you know dan great to have you back on here again we'll have future events here because we we are very fortunate to have people like dan and Yuval as our ready access subject matter experts on really the the two key countries that are presenting presenting the united states and partners and allies and and the world with their most serious you know security questions and challenges in the 21st century um, and I will note that that Mez Insights, we'll throw that in the show notes as well. So people can take a look at that piece that just came out this week that you did for them. Dan, again, thank you very much for your time. Great to have you back on here. Yeah, thank you, Major Brown. And thank you for everybody for tuning in and taking the time this, this morning. Great. And uh, last note I'll throw out is that um, we will be advertising the broadcast for next week here uh, either today or over the weekend. But we're very fortunate to, thanks to uh, one of the associate dean of the Command and Staff College, College of distance education and training component. So the uh, the distance learning center under EDCOM coordinated for Commander Pavlo Budayevsky of the uh, of Ukrainian military who's visiting the United States next week. Pavlo will be made available to us for a broadcast. And, you know, he lives and works in Kyiv, so he's got some very timely sort of frontline perspectives that we're, we're grateful he's gonna be able to share with us. So that'll be next Wednesday, 8 March in the morning. We'll be advertising that here in the next couple of days. So please watch out for that one. That promises to be a, a really excellent, timely episode. All right, everyone else, Dan and the audience, thank you again. Take care and we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for joining us. As always, we depend on support and feedback from the Team Crew Lab community to constantly improve our offerings and reach a wider audience. So if you have feedback on this episode, please take a moment to fill out the survey linked in the show notes to help us do better. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please hit the like button and subscribe to our channel on YouTube or leave us a review on the podcast app of your choice. 
It truly does help us reach a wider audience. Thank you as always for your support, and we'll see you on the next episode. Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected.